campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life. I'm John Chuck. I'm the minister at the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Uh, I'm in the midst of a series on Paul. And when I say Paul, I mean the guy that wrote those letters uh, in the New Testament. A pretty influential figure. Uh, we'll find out how influential today. Uh, last week, N.T. Wright was on the program. He's just published a 1,700-page volume on Paul. He's an evangelical scholar from the U.K. Uh, and today I have James Tabor, who wrote a bit thinner book, but still packed with information about the historical Paul. Now, I have to tell you, I really don't care that much for Paul. I like Jesus a lot better. Paul's a little opaque. Uh, he's been um, accused of, and, and perhaps rightly so, of uh, all kinds of bad behaviors uh, on behalf of Christians against women, against gays, and, uh, and he's just, you know, I got this kind of otherworldly thing going. Um, I don't know. Let's see if we can't uh, redeem Paul. My guest is Dr. James Tabor. He's the chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where he is professor of Christian origins and ancient Judaism. Uh, Dr. Tabor has combined his work on ancient texts with extensive fieldwork in archaeology in Israel and Jordan, including the re-exploration of the controversial Jesus tomb. Uh, he's the author in 2006 of The Jesus Dynasty, a new historical investigation of Jesus his Royal Family, and the Birth of Christianity. In 2012, he published two books. The first co-authored uh, with Simcha Jakubovici, The Jesus Discovery, The New Archaeological Find That Reveals the Birth of Christianity. And the book we're going to talk about today that has just been released in paperback is Paul and Jesus, How the Apostle Transformed Christianity. Welcome, Dr. Tabor, to Religion for Life. I'm glad to be with you, John. Thank you. Now, there are certainly uh, many books on Jesus and Paul. What is unique about yours, or, or what questions are you getting at by writing this book on Paul? What I'm trying to build upon is what I tell my students often in my class on Paul that I teach uh, every year or two, and that is that Paul is the most influential human being in history. Hmm. And normally when we make such an audacious claim, in other words, he would be Time Magazine's man of the millennia, not just man of the year, we would think of Jesus or Moses or maybe Muhammad or maybe the Buddha or maybe some political or social figure. But in terms of, of having the most impact and effect on our culture, our world, I think it's really Paul over Jesus because when most people think of Christianity and what it is and creedally what it essentially affirms they're really thinking of Paul more than the historical Jesus or the life of Jesus and what's so striking about that is to think that Paul never knew Jesus as he puts it after the flesh meaning while Jesus was on our earth the Jesus we call the historical Jesus Paul was not a follower. As far as we know, he never met him. And yet, in the New Testament, the letters that we have from Paul have such an overwhelming influence in terms of defining what becomes this new religion of Christianity. So although Paul is a Jew, 
and comes from a Jewish background, I think, and I try to argue in the book, that he does set forth the parameters of what becomes a new religion, Christianity. So the question is, did Jesus uh, partake of that or endorse that, or is Paul really introducing something new? And that's what the book is really about, Paul and Jesus. How do they juxtapose? Yeah, your subtitle is uh, that uh, Paul transformed Christianity, uh, but by reading your book and what you just said, you could almost make the statement that uh, Paul invented Christianity as we know it. Well, as you know, John, in our field of New Testament studies, uh, there's been a debate for over a century now as to what extent should we call Paul the founder of Christianity. In some ways, it's semantics. This is a popular book for the non-specialist audience published by Simon & Schuster. So when you say Paul transformed Christianity, Christianity probably isn't the right word, but it's the word people know. Uh, A better explanation would be what became or developed into what we know as Christianity, meaning a separate religion from Judaism that would look back and say, no, we came from that, that is the Jewish faith, but we're not part of that. We're something new. We're a new covenant. We have a new understanding of things. And even though our roots are in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, that's not us. As opposed to Jews who would say, we look back to the Torah and to the prophets and the laws of Moses. And so the question is, did Jesus inaugurate that change? Uh, Was Jesus, did Jesus step out of his uh, Jewish background to the extent that he actually inaugurated a movement that, not just a movement within Judaism, but a movement that would become separate from Judaism? And I argue in the book that Paul was the architect of that uh, split. So I put it pretty early. Now, this by the Jesus died in 30, the year 30 A.D. or C.E. I would say by 55 or 60, Paul has already laid the foundations of what becomes the new faith. And when Christians stand up in church today and they quote the Apostles' Creed or they quote the Nicene Creed, Orthodox Christians of all denominations, Catholic, Protestant, and Greek Orthodox, Uh, They're essentially quoting the dogmas of Paul, not the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus we associate more with the Sermon on the Mount, and they're about as Jewish as you can get. And the teachings of Paul, the theology of Paul, really, is something that is innovative and uh, steps across that line, I think. Talk about, uh, in, in, in your book, uh, about how the kind of the order of the New Testament uh, confuses us. Uh, we first have the four Gospels that tell the stories of Jesus, then Acts that connects Jesus, uh, supposedly, and the Apostles, and then Paul, and then Paul's letters that speaks about the church, kind of a nice fluid progression. But uh, the earliest documents are Paul's letters, and, and, uh, and you say that the Gospels themselves are really influenced by Paul's theology. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, that's a very good question, a very important question, because people open the New Testament, of course, they start with Matthew, and Jesus did come before Paul. Paul came along later and joined the movement and didn't know Jesus, so it seems like he should start with Matthew. But our earliest Christian document is a letter Paul wrote, we call it First Thessalonians, and it's written around 50 A.D., about 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion. 
And so what I suggest in the book, and I kind of walk readers through it to show them the difference that it makes, is that you you have to read the New Testament backwards. Uh, not necessarily literally, like start with the book of Revelation and go that way, but but read it chronologically. And that becomes backwards in terms of what we have now. So Paul comes first, and then the Gospels actually are a generation later. So Paul has already had his influence. And so we have to actually talk about a quest for the historical Paul, because many people, when they open the New Testament, they have the book of Acts in their head, even though it's called Acts of the Apostles. It should probably be called the Acts of a Couple of Apostles and then the Glorious Career of the Apostle Paul, because by chapter 9, it's all Paul. It's essentially the story of Paul, and that's what people have in their heads. And yet, the book of Acts was written as late as 80 or 90 CE or AD. So that's a full generation. The destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans has already taken place. And Judaism has essentially been uh, dealt a blow politically and socially in the land of Israel. And so Paul is long gone by that time. And to we really have to go back to Paul's original letters and then realize that the Gospels come later. And I think they are influenced by Paul's thought. When I read the Gospel of Mark, you're getting Jesus, there's no question. And there's a framework of Jesus. But the essential theology is Paul. You know, that Jesus came, that he died for the sins of the world, that he was headed for the cross from day one, and his death is the redemptive death that brings salvation to the world. And all the Gospels uh, echo this, and this is essentially something that we get uh, formulated first, I think, by Paul. Now, this is controversial in the field, because there would be colleagues of mine that would argue that Paul is just echoing uh, an early Christian message that James and Peter and John and others who knew Jesus would have shared. But but I contest that. I argue that that's not the case, that they would have uh, been fairly appalled at Paul's message, to use a bad pun. In the uh, in the book, you use the example, for example, the Last Supper, uh, the words of institution that we say in church all the time, the body and the blood. Uh, you suggest that those are supposed that those words attributed to Jesus were originally uh, Paul's theology put on the lips of Jesus. Is that right? I do argue that, and I think it's uh, I think it's a good solid argument because we have we have a couple of problems. First of all, with sources, we have that exact. Uh, account of institution in 1 Corinthians 11. Well, that's from 55 A.D. And then the Gospel of Mark being written 20, 30 years later, depending on uh, when we date it, echoes that as if it's uh, just echoing Paul. And Paul says, I receive this from the Lord. And then he gives these words of institution. So what Paul claims as his authority are appearances, or we would probably call them today, apparitions of Jesus. In other words, Paul is dealing with an entity uh, of his own religious experience that he identifies with the risen Christ. And to him, as he says in one of his letters, we no longer know Jesus after the flesh, but now we know Christ, what he calls the life-giving spirit. And he 
claims to receive that from the Lord, which is Christ. He doesn't say he got it from tradition. And so I think Paul is interpreting that Last Supper in these traditional terms, and then it's picked up by the Gospels. And I show in the book that there's evidence within Luke, particularly with the different manuscripts of Luke, which differ on this, of the original ceremony that we still have preserved in the Didache. Now, the Didache is not in the New Testament, but that's a writing from the turn of the century that was circulated more in early Jewish Christian circles and has a completely different Eucharist service with nothing about the body and blood of Christ, which I think is Paul's unique contribution. What does the, uh, the Didache say about, uh, about the Eucharist? Well, when you take the cup, it's the cup of the vine of the Messiah David, so it's very much of a messianic banquet. And we, when you take the bread, the bread represents the scattered children of God scattered throughout the world being gathered back together. So it's very much of a messianic banquet. What the Messiah is supposed to do is regather the children of God, the children of Israel, and uh, celebrate uh, the Messiah of David, and so that's what the Didache does, and that is an early Christian document. So we have this alternative ceremony that, in my mind at least, if you take somebody like James, the brother of Jesus, uh, from all accounts, he's an observant Jew, he keeps the Torah, as I think Jesus did, and the idea of even ceremonially drinking blood and eating flesh, even as a symbol, much less taking it more literally, is just not a Jewish thing. We have parallels in Hellenistic religions of these kinds of ceremonies, particular, particularly in the Greek magical papyri, where you eat and drink the body and blood of the god. But I, I really don't imagine that it could possibly stem back to Jesus and that Last Supper. I think this is a Pauline interpretation. If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life. My name is John Schuck. My guest is Dr. James Tabor, professor of uh, religion at uh, the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and author of Paul and Jesus, How the Apostle Transformed Christianity. And you're talking about Jesus' brother, James, who is an interesting figure, a figure that uh, many of us don't know a whole lot about. And uh, let me just start off by asking a very blunt question. Uh, what did James believe about Jesus? For example, uh, did James think his brother rose from the dead? You know, James is a very interesting character. Like you say, many Christians would get him confused with the James the fisherman, you know, one of the Twelve Apostles. But this is actually uh, James, the brother of the Lord. It's disputed as to what his family connection is. Is he a cousin? Is he a child of Mary? And Joseph is he a child of Joseph by a previous marriage. You have different theological positions, but he's called by Paul, James, the brother of the Lord, and he's in charge of the movement after the death of Jesus. That's a surprising thing. And that's even reflected in the book of Acts, which is a very pro-Pauline uh, story in which James takes charge at the apostolic council that meets in Jerusalem, and Paul is called in, and Peter's called in. But it's James that actually says, look, okay, here's my decision. Here's what we're going to do. And we have records of James from outside the New Testament. I think he did believe that his brother uh, was exalted, 
Paul reports that James experienced a, an appearance of Jesus after the resurrection, exact uh, after Jesus' death, that is, uh, uh, as part of the resurrection accounts in 1 Corinthians 15. So he did believe that his brother uh, had been vindicated by God, and I would think a Messiah, if not the Messiah. But he then kind of uh, takes over in that role because he's also a descendant of David and uh, becomes the head of the church or the administrator. Really, it wasn't really the church. It was the synagogue. In fact, in the letter of James that we have, uh, he refers to Jesus twice, but nothing that sounds like Paul. No, there's nothing about him dying for his sins, doesn't mention the resurrection, but he talks about the faith of Jesus, and he calls the assembly the synagogue. So he's reflecting a, a, what we would call a very Jewish stage of the movement. He dies in 63, even before Paul dies, and, and he dies in Jerusalem. Paul dies in Rome. And after that, uh, I think the letters of Paul begin to have their influence. So um, the uh, opponents uh, in, of Paul in his letters, uh, in some respects, are, are James and, and Peter. This is the most controversial thing in my book, I, I think, for my colleagues and maybe the general public, is the chapter called Battle of the Apostles, in which I do argue that toward the end, uh, in the 60s A.D. or C.E., uh, before Paul uh, has his final confrontation and trial before Nero and is executed, that there's a break with the original Jerusalem apostles. And I give evidence uh, for this uh, within the letters of Paul. Now, most of my colleagues would say, no, those are not the Jerusalem apostles. Those are other apostles that oppose Paul. They're usually called Judaizing teachers. But I try to recapture the history as we have it from Paul's own letters. And, and believe it or not, the last word we have about Peter from Paul is when he opposes him. It's in the uh, book of Galatians. Chapter 2, he said, I stood up and opposed Peter to his face because he was not right before God. And then you get this break where Barnabas, who had once accompanied Paul, no longer travels with him. And I think that's where you begin to get the rift. And I would date it uh, mid-50s uh, A.D., C.E. But Paul is not necessarily a forthcoming uh, with the apostles when he meets them as to all that he's teaching. The issue is not whether Gentiles need to convert to Judaism to be part of the movement. That was settled. And James, Peter, John, they all agree Gentiles do not need to become Jews. Paul agrees with that. The question is, is Paul teaching Jews that they do not need to maintain their Jewish observances and practices? And I would say that he is, in fact, doing that, but not openly. And he says, in fact, in 1 Corinthians, to the Jew, I become as a Jew. To those under the law, under the Torah of Moses, I become as under the Torah. And then he adds parenthetically, but not under the Torah as far as Christ is concerned. So I actually, I don't think he's hypocritical. I think he's strategic. He believes the end is so near maybe 
in a matter of months or years that all of this is going to pass away. It's all going to be settled. There's not even going to be Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave and free, very quickly. It's all going to pass away. There's this transformation. And that apocalyptic perspective of Paul is the forgotten key to understanding him. Even his position on women. Women should be silent. Women are inferior to men, at least in terms of authority. And the husband is the head of the wife and so forth. Uh, He's willing to take those positions because, as he says, the form of this world is passing away very quickly. That's going to all be transformed. And women and men and the whole new creation is going to blossom forth, and there won't be any male and female. So I think that is a real key to understanding Paul. It's not that he's against Judaism. He just thinks it's a an obsolete faith that is soon to be replaced by this new revelation of the messianic kingdom of Christ that's going to appear when Jesus returns in the clouds. Well, this seems pretty unique uh, to Paul. I'm, I'm trying to get a handle on this. Uh, maybe you can help with this. What's the difference between, say, James community and Paul regarding who the Christ is or who the Messiah is? Well, unfortunately, we don't have really good sources on what the James community thought until about uh, the second century when we get what are called the Clementine Oracles. If you're willing to go with those, and and I do accept those as probably reflecting the reality, uh, the real difference is that the Judeo-Christians, who are later called the Ebionites, would understand Jesus not as a pre-existent divine virgin-born Son of God who comes to earth, dies on the cross, and ascends to heaven and is glorified, but rather as a human being in whom God is well-pleased, that God anoints with the Spirit at baptism and therefore adopts. It was called adoptionism in the early church. The Arians, if you remember, also believe this. And there was a huge battle in early Christianity about this issue. And I think uh, James and the Jerusalem apostles would have clearly been on the side of what later we call the Arians. And then Jesus is exalted, but he's not to be worshipped. He's certainly not God. There's no trinity. He's a servant of God, uh, but as Jesus even says in the Gospels, why do you call me good? There's one good God. And Jesus quotes the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart. And so I think the Jamesian community and the early apostles at Jerusalem are holding much more to that Jewish understanding of God and the Messiah and also observing the Torah uh, if they were Jewish. And, and so it seems like the, the, like the point, uh, the transformation, the purpose of the Messiah, uh, perhaps in this Jewish Christian, is, is to kind of re, uh, restore earth as it is, to perhaps change um, uh, the political structures, to, to make earth more as God would want it to be. Whereas I'm reading with Paul that he's talking about a, a whole new cosmic kind of thing happening, a new heaven and a new earth. Is that right, or have I got that mixed up? I think that's right. Paul definitely has his head in heaven. He says, we look to the things above, not the things below. He talks about Christ seated at the right hand of God. He talks about a heavenly kingdom, people being rising up to meet Christ. 
being taken away, glorified in heavenly bodies, clearly not of this world. And I think the original messianic idea among most Jews of the time, it's not wholly was more of the earth. In other words, think of the Lord's Prayer, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the will being done on earth is really the kingdom of God. That means the rule of God. But it's not wholly political because it would have social transformation and a kind of renewal of nature and creation. If you read the latter parts of the book of Isaiah, you know, the wolf lies with the lamb, however you take that literally or figuratively. There is a transformation, but it's a regathering of Israel all nations coming to know the one God, the Creator, peace and justice being established throughout the earth. Uh, Isaiah 11 would be the passage, and Jesus quotes that, and it's applied to Jesus, that the Messiah's come to preach the good news and to bring about this period. And then the key verse in Isaiah 11 about the Messiah is, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that would be the best definition of the kingdom is to have a planet, an earth. But it is this earth, however transformed. Uh, it's not heaven. That is, it's not leaving the earth and going to a better place. It's bringing the kingdom of God to the earth, and that is what you have in the book of Revelation. If you remember at the end, the dwelling of God comes down to the new earth, not the earth going up to heaven. So I think that was probably the more original future hope of the followers of Jesus. Paul's legacy, in a sense, of, of heaven beyond earth and a whole future really kind of won the day in some respects. So we think of, of the church today, still thinking about that. So now as an historian, just kind of a final question, what do you hope uh, people will get from your book if we read Paul in a different way? I think the real challenge the book will leave the reader with is this failure of apocalyptic. In other words, the end did not come. What Paul most hoped, that transformation did not come. And so people naturally, uh, Christians, switch to the heavenly world and death as the hope. In other words, if the end of the world is not going to come, the end of history, if there's not going to be this transformation of history, then maybe we'll find the transformation beyond this world when we die. And that became the emphasis of Christianity. But I want people to remember uh, where we came from, and others, what the roots of the original movement were, and in fact, what Jesus originally preached, because I think that ideal of letting the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven can connect us to Judaism again, and to the Jewish people who talk about tikkun haolam, fixing the world, and other uh, forms of Christianity today, sometimes called the social gospel, that would really see the Christian task as much more of uh, rectifying things in this world rather than just getting to the world beyond. And I think that's an emphasis that we need to recover uh, if we want to understand the historical Jesus. Professor James Tabor has been my guest on Religion for Life, uh, the author of Paul and Jesus, How the Apostle Transformed Christianity, uh, just now in paperback, an excellent read. Uh, Dr. Tabor, thank you for this work, and thank you for being with me today on Religion for Life. 
Thank you, John. Glad to be with you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schack. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find out more about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts, at the website religionforlife.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and listen to us on iTunes. I have a special thank you today to John Gardner. John is a friend of mine. He's also a sessions musician. He's a drummer. He's in Nashville often uh, playing for uh, all kinds of musicians. Uh, in fact, he while he was on tour uh, as a drummer for Don Williams, the country singer, he made this music bed for me. And so now we have official music for Religion for Life. Thank you, John. We are big time now. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. Be well. Be well.